Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. This is a podcast brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. My name again is Rick Lawrence. I'm the author of The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and I'm here with my co-host, Becky Hodges. Hi! It's a very, very good hi. Um, Our topic for today is going to center around finding your purpose in life, one of the central questions that all human beings have. How do you find your purpose in life? And we're going to talk about how you find that purpose in Jesus, and we're not going to talk about it rhetorically, like uh, uh, kind of a uh, what you might hear in Sunday school. We're going to talk about, hey, really, though, how do you find your purpose in Jesus? That's what we're talking about today. So we'd like to introduce you to the concept behind this podcast. It's called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, because that's what we want to do. <laughs> Most people go through their lives uh, understanding Jesus and thinking they have him kind of dialed in, but the truth is they haven't slowed down and paid ridiculous attention to him, and that's how you really unlock his heart. A lot of times people say, oh, the things that some of the things that Jesus said and did, they're kind of a mystery to me, um, because Jesus is a mystery, and I, I think that's a bunch of bunk. He's not a mystery. He came to us to show us the heart of his Father, and he's putting it all out there for us. It's really on us to slow down and pay better attention to him. That's what unlocks his heart. So if you've grown up in the church your whole life like I have, and you've heard about Jesus your whole life, you can kind of get inoculated against who he really is, who the Bible really reveals that he is. In fact, a lot of us right now um, have a false picture of Jesus in our heads when we think about who he is. So we want to slow down and pay some ridiculous attention to him to unlock his heart and to see how that will change the trajectory of our life. So uh, one thing, by the way, just to throw in here, um, Time Magazine every year has uh, a, a person of the year on their January cover. So it's always a much anticipated, who's going to make the cover of Time Magazine? A couple of years ago, they decided to vary that and name the most significant person in history. So they use an algorithm that they borrowed from Google, and they, they use this algorithm to try to discover by analyzing massive amounts of data, try to figure out who the, the person is in history who had the most impact on history. And they discovered, uh, uh, spoiler alert, that Jesus is that person, and it wasn't even close. So even in a kind of a secular strata, Jesus is the most significant person who's ever lived in history the person who's most affected our history and our present moment. It makes sense that we would slow down and pay better attention to him then. So uh, let's introduce ourselves just a little bit, Becky and I. Um, I uh, as I said, I've been editor of Group Magazine uh, for almost 30 years. I'm the champion—that's actually my official title, I'm sorry, but my champion, champion title is actually what I'm called here—for <laughs> youth ministry— at Group Publishing, I've been doing this for a long time. It basically means that I'm uh, uh, involved in uh, everything connected to youth ministry in our organization, resourcing, uh, 
leading the Simply Youth Ministry Conference, uh, books, podcasts, everything. And I have a, you know, a second simultaneous life of um, helping advance our whole Jesus-centered uh, philosophy and mission uh, throughout the company. So, so that's, that's what I do. I, I'm married to Bev for 26 years. I have two daughters, a, uh, an almost senior in high school named Lucy, and a 13-year-old daughter named Emma. They couldn't be more different as human beings, uh, so that's a parenting challenge. And also, um, every single person in my house is female. <laughs> so besides my wife and my two daughters, I have a the most female dog in the history of the world is a Bichon Frise, <laughs> and we have uh, a, an eccentric and uh, and people-addicted Bichon Frise uh, female dog, two female cats, one of whom is deaf. We only discovered that about seven years into her life. It explains a lot when you realize your cat is deaf. Um, so, uh, and we also uh, previously had a female hamster that the female dog ate. So I'm surrounded by females all the time, and I'm actually doing this podcast with a female, so I'm very, very comfortable. <laughs> well, hi, I'm Becky Hodges, and I do not have the role of champion. I feel like that would be such a fun role. We are the champions. Oh, you probably don't friends. want me to sing, though. No, okay, okay, go ahead. no singing on the podcast. Rule number one, no singing on the podcast. Yeah, let me mark that down. Um, but I am, I'm a Biola grad. I'm a California native. Um, at Group Peer, you can find me at, and at Lifetree. I, I produce podcasts and I work on um, videos and do all kinds of fun stuff around here, um, promoting our Jesus-centered um, life brand. Um, I also have two pugs, Maddie and Rory. They should have their own television show because they're quite entertaining. Um, married to a wonderful man, um, and we're about to become foster parents in a few months. So really excited about that, and that will be our on-road into parenting. Wow, it's fantastic. Have you considered YouTube as a television option for your pugs? I have considered. I'm trying to figure out what the best avenue is. They do have a hashtag, though. Hashtag oh. the adventures of Maddie and Rory. Wow, I don't even have my own hashtag. It's really... Gotta, it's, it's gotta a, get on that. They're adorable, so I would follow it. All right, today we're going to talk about uh, finding your purpose in life by finding it in Jesus. So uh, we're going to talk about a story in the Bible where Jesus called Peter... Um, into ministry for the first time, and asked him to leave everything else behind on the spot. Uh, this is like a, an incredible story, an example of what I call a mud puddle story. It's this kind of story that everybody kind of knows, but we read it, and we process it, and then we kind of jump over it. We don't really sink into it, because what happens here is really incredible um, that Peter drops everything to follow Jesus. So we're going to sink into this story a little bit. Peter does find his purpose in life. It starts in this very moment, and we're going to slow down and pay attention to this story a lot more than normal to discover what's going on here. So that's what we're going to do. But before we get into that story, I wanted to share some statistics we found um, that are just floating around out there today about passion and purpose in life. So I found this uh, study by uh, Deloitte's Shift Index, that four out of five people, 80% of people, say they're dissatisfied with their job. Interesting. Yeah, think about that. Four out of five people. So uh, look around you, most likely, even if they have a smile on their face at work, they're dissatisfied with their job. It makes me really sad because I love my job. Yeah, I love my job. but 80%. That's but a, that's I mean, not, it's a majority. But that's not to shame anyone who isn't. You know? Totally. Yeah, no. of course not. No, we're not shaming. So four out of five people dissatisfied with their job... 
Here's the surprising thing. I, I found this just fascinating. The silver lining of the economic downturn that uh, so many couldn't find a new job. I mean, they got laid off and they couldn't find a job in their current career field. What experts have found um, is that the these people, um, because they had no prospects in their current job trajectory, they started to think about, well, what do I really like to do? Maybe if I don't have any options in my area of training, what do I like to do? Because now's the time to shift, if so. So this guy, John Seeley Brown, who's the former chief scientist at Xerox, said this, rather than waiting for companies to open up their payrolls, these people are taking matters into their own hands and defining their own jobs. And when they define their own jobs, they're really trying to land in the in the category of their passion and purpose, things that they love to do. Why not take a shot when you're in a place where you You've lost everything. Basically, why not take a shot? And that was me to a T, actually. I was in my uh, late 20s, and I was part of the 2000 rollout of layoffs that happened. Everyone around me was losing their jobs, and um, there was no other place. You know, there was nothing to apply to, really, unless you were going to be maybe a Starbucks barista. But um, And so I started an online wedding magazine. It was a really exciting adventure just to get to go out and, and go for broke, which I did actually go for broke. That was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the unexciting part. It was exciting, and then it was unexciting for the go for broke It's part. only exciting when you look back at it in retrospect, and you're currently not broke. Yes, that, that's exactly. Right, yeah. But I moved. I, I, I survived. I did survive. Yeah. So... I mean, th- that's, that's the uh, like a little mustard seed story about that is so important and so meaningful for all of us. We, if we could do the thing that makes us feel alive, mm-hmm. the thing that we know we were created to do, and make a living at it, of course, all of us would be doing that. And we hear people say this all the time. It's usually, you know, actors who are making six million dollars a film that say, "Hey, go out and find your passion and purpose." Just do what you love, and we hear it, and we long for it, and we think, yeah, but good for you, but... That seems unrealistic. I live in reality. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here's another another stat we found. Uh, According to the Barna Institute, millennials don't think that starting a career is a top priority. They want to first find their passion and purpose, and uh, and they don't see that having to be directly tied into what they do for work. So really, for young people... Um, they they don't want to sort of go through the motions in their mm-hmm. career. They don't want to simply work to get a paycheck. They want somehow to find uh, a life that is full of their passion and purpose. Um, I, you have a story about um, the Lost Boys, I think. that Yeah, there's this this entire movement, and I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and um, but I hear that this is happening all over the globe, and I actually just went to a community meeting just kind of about the transient population in um, Fort Collins to, to for the community to better understand who they are and why there's so many of them that are growing. And one of the, th- the things that we're learning about them is that they're not homeless in the way that you would typically expect. They're not like, you know, I- incapable of having a job. They're actually opting out of it, um, at, which makes sense because you see them and they're like well-clothed and they have like healthy looking dogs and REI backpacks. And um, and you're just thinking to yourself, how are these people homeless? They, they seem so capable of being able able to work and they actually are a lot of them are actually college educated 
And they're just, they don't want to opt into consumerism. They want to be able to live out their passion and do what they think is best for the world um, and live without consuming. And and so they, they think that they're doing what, what they're called to do, which is interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's, and I think it's, it's not just true of these young millennials that everyone has a desire somewhere deep inside right. to live a life like that, but then they weigh what they'd have to give up or what they'd have to risk I to would. get that. Yeah, it's it's a pretty tall order. But the the idea is, um, are we meant to live out of our passion and purpose no matter what we're doing? And is that possible for anybody to do? So I, I think it's a good transition into this uh, story about Jesus calling Peter. Uh, I, I think it perfectly fits that. I'm going to read this little portion of the story, and then uh, Becky, you and I can can talk through it. So uh, this is this is from Matthew chapter four, verses eighteen through twenty-two, um, and here's how it goes: One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. (laughs) A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called to them to come too. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. So just a little bit of context about this, because I've done some, some deeper study of this context, because this the mud puddle stories mm-hmm. fascinate me. So um, the, at the time this was happening, most people were the basic equivalents of slaves in this culture. They didn't own their own freedom. They, they, were, uh, they, they were subservient to a master of some kind. They, of course, didn't own their own business. They were just trying to survive as people who had no rights and no freedom. So into that mix, you have Peter, who owns his own fishing business, so he's a small business owner, and two other disciples, James and John, who work for their father, who owns his own—it's a family fishing business. These are two families that own their own business when almost everyone else is basically a slave. So these are no ordinary families, and what they have is longed for by so many other people— the freedom to own your own business, make your own path, make your own income, live a better life than most people are living, this is their context. So when this says that um, these two sets uh, uh, of brothers um, immediately left their their businesses behind to follow Jesus, this is a massive thing mm-hmm. that that is going on here. So we have to ask, what's going on? Is it just Jesus giving his googly eye? to them and mesmerizing them so they're like zombies. <laughs> yes, Jesus, I will follow you now. I think when we're kids, honestly, that's not far off from the truth about what we think happens here. Jesus gives them the eye. Yeah. And they somehow the super supernaturally drop everything and go follow Jesus because it's Jesus. Just keep in mind they didn't know who the heck this guy was very well. So, do you think that that maybe Jesus went to some other like business owners and asked them the same thing and they said no? <laughs> well, we know that that uh, from the story about his engagement with the rich young ruler, that he asked him to do something similar. Hey, uh, yeah, I get it that you think you're great stuff um, and you've got everything dialed in. How about you go sell everything you have, 
give the money to the poor and come follow me. Not that different than what he's asking these guys to do. And the rich young ruler says, uh, thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. I didn't know you were going to ask that. Well, it, you know, 20s Becky would be like, yeah, let's do it. Adventure, you know, move across the country in your car and have no possessions or a job to go to. But 30s Becky is is scared that I would I would be the one to absolutely. say, Ab- no, I, I can't. I have so many responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think part of what's happening here in this in this engagement is a lot of times people gravitate to the supernatural with Jesus, like he, like his googly eye or whatever you want to call that. Instead, I think Jesus studies people. He understands the hearts of people. So what, what did they know about Jesus? We don't know a lot about what they knew about him at this point. What he was was a very, already a very well-known rabbi, somebody that people were buzzing and talking about, that his teaching was radically different than all of the other rabbis. There was something different about this guy. And as he engages them, look at what he promises them. If you follow me, I'll show you how to fish for people. So can you imagine these guys hauling in fish day after day? What am I doing? I'm making money. I have a small business. I exist to make the money for our family to live. Yes, and into that scenario, Jesus says, yeah, that's good, but what if, you, what if I taught you how to fish for people? to help me rescue people. So this is why people often go into helping professions, by the way. They have a heart and a desire to help rescue people. And you especially see in the helping professions, people who have needed rescue themselves get into those professions. Like people will have a crisis in their life, go through counseling, and then they go back to school to become a counselor because they want to participate in somebody's rescue because they saw how profound and powerful it was for them. Well, I think some of that's going on here as well. Jesus is offering them a chance to do something great with their lives, and he's asking them to risk to do it. They want to make a difference. They want to make a difference, and there's something about this moment, the invitation. You're inviting me, Jesus? You're asking me out of everybody? You want me to to do this? And I could just imagine Peter and Andrew looking at each other like, are you in? Let's do this. Are you in? Let's, let's give it a shot and see where this takes us. This is the beginning of their journey to finding their passion and purpose in life, to finding the thing that they were created to do in the first place. It makes you wonder though, like what you know, what was the aftermath of that decision, yeah. you know? Like did they have homes, did they have families? Were either of them married? Did they have children? Um, did they have any dependents that were counting on them making money and you know, what was the what could have been the aftermath, and how how much did that possibly cost them? Yeah, and that this is one of those things that um, growing up in the church, I'm sure this is similar for you. When we think about following Jesus, and we heard forever, it's about sacrificing, laying down what you have now, like the rich young ruler was asked to do. We always think about this in terms of ah, oh, could I give that up? It's like working so up true. the courage uh, to give it up. But actually, I think in reality, what happens when people do this? They're not thinking about that. They're not thinking about what they're giving up. They're thinking about what's in front of them. What I, they're gaining. I, yeah, I remember I, I met one of my close friends now. His name is Tom Melton, who's the senior pastor of the church we had just started going to about 15 years ago. Um, I went on a family retreat, 
And uh, I didn't know him, but I was I already had such tremendous respect for him and for his deep love for Jesus. So it's a pretty big church, and I thought, oh, if I could just have a short conversation with him, just to introduce myself and tell him who I was, I would love that. Well, on this family retreat, I was sitting on a couch. He sat down next to me, introduced himself, and two and a half hours later, at almost midnight, we were still talking. Um, he then asked me the next day if I would be willing to meet with him on a regular basis. And we've been meeting together ever since for mm. the last 15 years. So for me, I wasn't thinking in that moment with his invitation to join him on his journey about what I'd have to do to make that happen. This is on a small scale yeah. comparing it. I was only thinking about what he was inviting me into and to be with him Yep, seemed so attractive to me. And I think that's something that's going on with... Uh, with Peter and Andrew and James and John here, there's something so attractive about Jesus that when they give up what they're giving up, it doesn't seem like that Nothing big of a deal matters. to them. Yep. Does that make sense? So yep. it's not a focus on what you're giving up, it's what you're moving into. But I think a lot of people do read that story and think, Absolutely. how could they do that? You know? and Absolutely. But just think about anything that you've, uh, ever had on, the, on, a, on paper, given up something to go get. If you look back on it, it's really... I wasn't so much worried about what I was giving up. I loved what I was moving toward, and that's what's missing in our understanding of this story. Okay, now let's let's flash forward in their trajectory um, to uh, close to the end of the story. So uh, there's this tipping point in Jesus' ministry. It happens in John chapter 6, where he's a rock star. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people flocking to listen to him and to hear his teaching, to see his miracles, and to see what he does with loaves and fishes. He, he is the it guy at this time in history. So tens of thousands of people are flocking to listen to him, and in, uh, in, uh, in one of these moments, one of the people close to Jesus, when he's standing on this hillside, um, says, hey, Jesus, could you do another one of those loaves and fishes miracles like you did the other day? We're kind of hungry. And Jesus, obviously. obviously, yeah, I'm hungry. Can you do that thing again? And Jesus says, well, if you really knew what to ask for, you'd ask for uh, living bread and living water instead of that stuff. Yum. And, yeah, and they're like, what? And what do you mean, Jesus? And he says, well, if you want any part of me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. So mm -hmm. they're like us. They're going, hey, what does that mean? Why did he just say that? Yeah, and they have to pass it back to thousands of people in the crowd who are asking, what did he just say? And it comes back to them, hey, ask him what he means. So they ask him what he means, and nine times in a row, Jesus does not explain himself, he just repeats himself. If you want any part of me, you're just going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. The end result of this is tens of thousands of people evacuating in a very short amount of time from that hillside. They're gone. Mm -hmm. uh, they have said to themselves, uh-oh, this guy's nuts. I thought he was something, but actually he's mental. We need to get out of here. Uh, we're not following him anymore. And the reason this is a tipping point is Jesus never again had huge crowds follow him after he did this. He decimated his following by doing this. So imagine if you're one of his close followers, you think you're part of something. Hey, this is going great guns. we got tens of thousands of people. You're a celebrity. Yeah. And then he says this, and he says it nine times in a row, and we don't understand either what he's saying and now you're left with him alone. It's just you guys, because you're his close, hand-picked followers. They're going to help him pull all this off. Uh, how, how am I going to walk away? Maybe I will after we debrief, Yeah. <laughs> but I can't walk away right now. So that's the setting. 
So Jesus is looking at them in this moment of tension and says, are you going to leave too? And this is why I love Peter. He stands up in the middle of this and says, where else would we go, Jesus? Mm. Only you have words of life and truth. So we see the Peter who leaves behind his business to follow after Jesus for the promise of what's to come. And at this point, he has grown to know the heart of Jesus well enough that he does not understand. He does not say that he understands what Jesus just said. He doesn't get it on a mental level. What he does get is the heart of Jesus. He's been exposed to him enough that he's been ruined for Jesus. I, I love to use that phrase because it's to me it's just so true. There's a point at which when you've tasted and experienced the heart of Jesus, that you can't substitute anything else for that. Yeah. And that's what Peter's saying. I don't know what's going to happen to me, Jesus. I, I don't know, but I know I can't leave because you've captured me. So I'm done. So I'm going to follow you to the end, whatever the end means. And he does. Well, and I was talking to someone who has heard you say that um, that, that phrase before. <laughs> you probably know who I'm talking about. And she she just adamantly hates that phrase. Like, I, I hate that phrase ruined for Jesus because, she, you know, it, to her, Jesus is this person who who has repeatedly through her life just come in and he's he's made things better, he's restored things, he has um, he has just helped her through hard times, and so for her to think of a Jesus who could just come in and ruin her, um, it's it's not the person she knows, and I think that that probably Peter felt the same way, you know, that he didn't he he was maybe ruined for Jesus, but I think that in that context he. He had seen that Jesus come and be, be by his side through that whole yeah, time. Yeah, and in the, in the context of ruined is ruined for, not ruined by. Yeah. So it's not ruined because of. Ruined for means any other thing that I might have wanted is overshadowed by you. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff is really dead to me. It's what Paul said repeatedly in all of his letters. He was basically saying... Um, I have this and this and this, and I have this degree, and I have this experience, and I have this ability. All of that's rubbish to me for the one thing that really matters to me now, which is I am wholly undivided in my attention on Jesus. I just want to know him. So uh, Paul himself is saying, it's not because I'm being disciplined to get all these things out of my life. It's I've been so captured by the heart of Jesus that I can't think about anything else, or it filters into everything else I do is my uh, attraction, my magnetic attraction to the heart of Jesus. I think that's what Peter is saying here. So ruin means everything else doesn't matter to me in, in consequence of what I've been invited into here and what I've experienced and tasted in Jesus' heart. So, Rick, if you're new to that idea, you know, maybe you've been following um, the Lord for a long time, you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you haven't, or maybe you're not right now, um, where would you even start? How would you how would you tell someone that you would start paying ridiculous attention to Jesus? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. So I'm thinking about my 17-year-old daughter, Lucy, who... Um, is a remarkable girl. <laughs> she really is. And she she's, uh, for a long time now, challenged me in her relationship with Jesus. She's just different than me, and her differences really challenge me. And um, she has a, a deep heart for special needs kids, not just um, 
uh, oh, well, I would say severely special needs kids. She has a heart for them. And so um, this every summer she goes and uh, spends 10 days at Camp Barnabas in Missouri um, assigned to a special needs person. It's usually an adult who has the mental-emotional capabilities of a six- or seven-year-old. And in this case, this year, this person was also a quadriplegic. And 23 hours a day, Lucy is assigned to this person. She changes their adult diapers. She transfers them out of bed into their wheelchair. She does everything. It's exhausting. She gets four or five hours of sleep a night. Um, I can't imagine doing what Lucy does at this camp, and yet she comes back and she's just full of life because she has found her purpose. And That's she's amazing. Seven, she's 17. She's found what she's called to do. And so she came back this year, and this is her last summer before her... Um, she goes off to college, so this, this time is precious to us. So she's away from us for 10 days. She comes back. Within a week, she says, the camp needs counselors in, th- in another camp in three weeks. I'd like to go back to Camp Barnabas and serve. And we're like, this is like a bombshell for all of us. And we're, our first reaction was, well, we don't want you to leave for another 10 days. This time is precious to us, but we have to wrestle with what is God doing in her. So she was wrestling. I don't know what to do, Dad. I don't, I don't know what I should do. I don't know if this desire to go back is just trying to recapture an incredible experience and it's going to blow up on me, or if God's really calling me to do this. And I said, you know, Lucy, Jesus leads us in lots of ways. Um, it's not just one way. And I just sense in your situation right now that there's a lot of details that have to come together for you to be able to do this in a very short amount of time. So here's what I'd advise you. Um, uh, take some steps toward this, and if things seem to fall into place, I think that's Jesus leading you back to this camp. If you have to work hard at this, bear down, twist people's arms to get answers from them, um, you can't figure out where the money's going to come from, you're just stressing about it. Anxious. Yeah. I think that this is also um, a leading from Jesus, that this is just something you're trying to make happen. So why don't you take some steps forward and see what happens here, and and be open and inviting to the guidance of Jesus as you move into this. Well, what happened is that at each place, you know, where you think, whoa, is this going to be uh, one of those places where it's too hard and she's working too hard, or is it going to fall into place? Um, things fell into place, and she knew it in the midst of it. It looks like, Dad, things are falling into place. I think this is Jesus guiding me into this. And he did. She's heading back there in two days to That's go awesome. back for another uh, another week. So, so the the uh, the the starting point is an openness to the guidance of Jesus and an awakeness and alertness to how He might be leading you. And one way He leads you is to open doors and windows for you in front of you. It doesn't mean you don't do any effort. You have to take the risk. But is it something you're just making happen? Or is it something he's making happen as you move? And that that actually reminds me a lot of when I was in my 20s, I came to know Jesus for the first time um, in, a, in a real way. And I just remember um, just in small little things, like I would just pause and I would be like, okay, I don't really know how to talk to you. I don't know what this looks like, but I'm going to ask you this question and I'm just going to ask you um, to to show me. And I remember I, I heard a sermon about how when God speaks to you, he gives you peace and joy. Those are the emotions that that he gives you. And so I just said, God, if it's you, then just put a peace over me. 
you know, just, just make, make it a peaceful thing. Um, and, and as I've gotten, um, older and, and the questions are getting harder, um, the, like Lucy's am I, you know, is, is this a big direction I should go before I think I ask things like, should I eat toast for breakfast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or eggs? But now that the, the, the questions are harder, um, I always know that if I am feeling extremely anxious and I just cannot get past it, um, and the peace of God is not coming down on me. There's something, there's something awry, something I'm doing that, that is not walking in step with him. But when I have that peace and I have that joy just washing over me, it's, it's like we're on the same page, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that that helps guide you to your purpose in life is if you keep following that p- path and it can start with really, really small little steps that are very incremental. Um, but the more you get to know the voice of God um, the voice of Jesus, the more you trust it. And that's probably where Peter was. He he knew exactly where he was because he had seen it over and over again. He kept tr- he kept trusting God and kept trusting God and seeing it. And he took some steps into this life to see what would happen. And, I, you know, uh, one thing we're going to do, this is called paying ridicul- ridiculous attention to Jesus. So with every podcast, we're going to leave you with a challenge that Becky and I are also going to take up with you. Um, and challenge is maybe uh, too daunting a word. Yeah. It's it's an experiment. We're going to play a Small. little bit. Th- imagine you if you're a kid, you arrive at the playground, and you see all these different things that you could go play on. We're just going to choose something to go play on for the week and have some fun with it yep. and not put pressure on ourselves. Just have some fun and with it. And we're going to so- do it, too. Yeah, we're going to do it with yeah. you. We're going to play in the playground as well. So I, I, here's a really simple way that we've come up with for us to live this out this week. So Jesus told a parable about a man coming down and knocking on this guy's door repeatedly, asking him to let him in, and it was the middle of the night, and the guy said, go away, it's the middle of the night. But finally, just his, through his persistence, the master of the house opens the door to the visitor. So what is Jesus trying to tell us here? Hey, hey. Get your heart engaged. Take some risk. Be persistent with me. So let's try this this week. Um, When you come to a place where you need to make a decision, any kind of decision, stop for a moment and say simply, Jesus, show me the way. Say it like that. You can say it under your breath. I I do something like this all the time. Like Mm -hmm. today, I've been saying under my breath, Jesus, have mercy on me. When I start to feel tension or anxiety, I've just said, Jesus, have mercy on me. So say... Jesus, show me the way when you come up to a decision. It can be a small decision, a big decision, but then persist in it. Every time you feel yourself feeling the anxiety or the tension about the decision, just say in your breath, Jesus, show me the way. Jesus, show me the way. And have an attitude in yourself that is open, like your hands are open, like you're a catcher's mitt waiting for the pitch, right? So you're open to that way, and just simply keep repeating it until you find your way forward. And that that guidance could come with peace. Mm-hmm. It could come from an actual word popping into your head. It could come from a sudden conviction about which way you, it, it, the fog clears and you know. Just keep knocking on the door. Jesus, show me the way. Well, I just want to remind all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Everything that we talk about each episode, whether it's one of our challenges to pay ridiculous attention to Jesus, or if it's um, statistics that we share on the show or resources that we guide you to, 
They're all going to be on JesusCenteredLife.com. Click on the podcast, find episode one, um, and you can find everything that we talked about and mentioned here. We'll be doing that every single episode. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast by Lifetree. Subscribe to us by finding us on iTunes by searching Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye.